Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. and uh, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars. Uh, I wanted to thank you for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium and just take this opportunity to remind everyone uh, who's attending in person to please silence your cell phones as a courtesy to our speakers. Uh, I also wanted to mention that those who are watching the panel portion of tonight's program are welcome to email questions to speaker at heritage.org. Additionally, the panel portion of the program is being recorded and will be available for viewing and archiving purposes on the heritage.org events page. We'll be getting our panel started here momentarily. Uh, hosting today's program is Emily Gao. She is the direct, director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society here at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you, Andrew, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us in person and online. Today, according to the Pew Research Center, less than half percent, of, less than half of one percent of the U.S. population serves in the military. But those who do serve in the military have been at war continuously for more than 15 years. Last year, Army General Raymond Thomas commander of U.S. Special Operations Command, told Congress, I don't want to get into the morbid statistics, but we are suffering. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs estimates that post-traumatic stress disorder, known as PTSD, afflicts 11% of veterans of the war in Afghanistan and 20% of veterans of the war in Iraq. Each day, 21 veterans take their own lives, many of them because of PTSD. That means that more of our service members are dying by suicide than in combat. Our ability to treat the visible wounds of war has evolved greatly. Tonight's panel will share the best and most up-to-date information from science and medicine on how spiritual fitness can help improve treatment for the warriors who come back from war with invisible wounds. They will also recommend how the American people, the Trump administration, and the Congress can take action. Our moderator tonight will be Dr. Stephen Bucci, who served America for three decades as an Army Special Forces officer and top Pentagon official. In 2001, he became military assistant to Donald, Donald Rumsfeld, our defense secretary. At the Pentagon, he witnessed the 9-11 terrorist attacks. 
As commander of 3rd Battalion, 5th Special Forces, Dr. Bucci led deployments to Eastern Africa, South Asia, and the Persian Gulf, including Operation Desert Thunder in 1998. He is a visiting fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies, of which he was previously director. Dr. Bucci is also an adjunct professor of leadership at George Mason University. Finally, I'd like to say a special word of thanks to Mike Berry, Deputy General Counsel and Director of Military Affairs for First Liberty Institute. It was his vision and concern for the well-being of veterans that made tonight's event possible. Okay, uh, let me add my welcome to everyone <clears throat> here and joining us uh, online or who see this in the future uh, in the archived version. Uh, my job tonight is twofold. One is to introduce the, the three panelists, but also to kind of be the referee when we get to the Q&A part. Uh, and I'll explain in more detail how we're going to do that when uh, after the uh, panelists give their opening remarks. So real quickly, I will tell you, none of these introductions will do justice to the gentleman sitting next to me, but I'd rather take up the time with their substance rather than the intro. Uh, immediately to my left is Lieutenant Colonel Damon Friedman. Uh, he is a decorated combat veteran of the United States Air Force. Uh, interestingly, he started out his military career in the Marines, where he was commissioned, and then moved over to the Air Force, joining their special operations force there. Uh, his job, to put it as in layman's term, was to go out with the guys I used to lead and keep us safe by controlling all of the air support that our folks depend on so much when they're out at the end of a really long string. Uh, he did that very, very effectively in a lot of places uh, that were not terribly friendly to our folks, uh, and he saw a lot of the resultant um, damage that was done and carried some of that home himself. Uh, he is still on active duty, is still serving this country, uh, but he now has branched out into a nonprofit called Shields of Faith, or SOF, which is also Special Operations Forces. Uh, that foundation is there to help our warriors make that transition back to peacetime in the United States. And they've been doing that very effectively. Uh, and he is the the guy who is the genesis of the movie we'll see at the end of, of this session. Uh, and his task tonight is to give us an idea of the problem that we're facing in very stark and human terms. Uh, he will be followed by Dr. David LeMay. Uh, uh, Dr. LeMay is a, a uh, physician, obviously. Uh, and he is uh, board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Uh, he is an associate clinical faculty member at Florida State University School of Medicine. Uh, and interestingly, he, he serves on almost every sports team in America, apparently, the professional level sports team. So he's got quite a resume with people dealing with stress. But more important to me is that he is a medical advisor uh, to the Special Operations Forces Health Initiatives Program that is run through Task Force Dagger Foundation, which was founded by a guy who used to work for me when I was a commander. Uh, so he has a special place in my heart for that. And his job today is to articulate to you the, the science that 
also backs up what Damon is going to talk to you about anecdotally so that you see it's not just, you know, one man's opinion. It's uh, based on a heck of a lot of science as to what this problem really is. And then our final panelist is is a, a gentleman who's become a good friend of mine, uh, Richard Glickstein. Uh, he is he's on a campaign to help our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines get the help that they need in facing this problem of, of suicide and the stress that they're under. Uh, he basically now spends all of his time lobbying people, not lobbying in a negative sense, but trying to convince them to do the right things to help our young men and women get the, uh, the support that they need. Uh, he is going to specifically look at a possible solution that uh, he is recommending and we endorse to members of Congress to try and get the Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs to provide the right kind of help uh, for our folks. It's not a single solution, but it's convincing them to get all the tools on the table, specifically those tools that have proven scientifically to be effective. So with that, I'll stop. I'll turn it over first to Damon to uh, make some opening remarks. Well, first of all, uh, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to be here. Uh, at the end of the day, we're all gathering together for one reason and one reason only, and that's to provide the hope that our men and women who have gone to combat, who've defended this country, to give them the hope that they need. And I would, and it's my um, my hope that we could all work together collectively, regardless of where we come from or what our personal convictions are, uh, because at the end of the day, we want to help out that warrior, that man, that woman who's answered the nation's calling. Uh, and I, I would say, from from my perspective, you know, I'll be a little bit more on the scientific side, but try to tie in what we're talking about and why uh, why, why it's related to the the science and what's happening. Um, I, I think um, most people look at um, anything that may be even peripherally involving faith just from a, a, the standpoint of, okay, that's excluded from science, and that's, that's actually not really realistic. Uh, it depends on our um, – more on our, our mindset of how we look at things uh, from a scientific standpoint. If we, can, if we can look at it and say, hey, here's the physiologic changes that happen with this behavior, whatever the behavior is – um, then it's no longer just um, an abstract idea that has no has no scientific basis. Richard, uh, suicide <clears throat> doesn't differentiate between a Republican or a Democrat. Post traumatic stress disorder doesn't differentiate if you're a liberal or conservative. Uh, this is impacting our military veteran community in a tragic, horrific way. And the reality is what we've done so far is not working. And so the harsh reality and the truth is we've got a shift. We need a paradigm shift in the way we treat our men and women or in the military and the veterans community if we're going to find a solution for this. And I have the privilege of working with uh, Dr. Harold Koenig at Duke and Dr. Tyler Vanderweel at Harvard and they have amassed 140 years of evidence that demonstrates that there is an answer to this. 
And so we'll be discussing that. And at some point, I'd like to show you a brief slide to understand the philosophical challenge that we have concerning this issue and why it's so deep-seated to not find the answer currently the way we're looking at it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask them a couple of questions myself before I open it up to, to you to kind of bring out a little more of the data uh, and, and the information in general. So the, the first question for the panel is, what are the key points that demonstrate that spiritual fitness, and you may have to explain that term uh, as well, uh, that demonstrate that spiritual fitness helps veterans who are struggling with PTSD. And we'll go down down the road. So you can start, Damon, and then the other two can answer also. Well, when it comes to uh, spiritual fitness, I'd like to uh, kind of just expound a little bit on that. Uh, when we talk about whole person uh, fitness and a path to wellness, we have to consider that humans are made of mind, body, and spirit, soul. And so when we talk about physical fitness, that's something that really resonates with most people, right? When it comes to training, we know that uh, there's different ways we can get to the gym. There's, there's, uh, um, there's, there's machines called treadmills, and then there's all sorts of weights and things like that. Well, we want to take that same approach, not just with physical fitness, but psychological fitness and social, which is family and spiritual fitness. So I just wanted just to start off by saying that's what spiritual fitness is in its pure definition. Um, and, uh, and it's important to treat spiritual fitness with the same equality of all the other pillars when it comes to fitness. I would, I would say, uh, I, I think when you look at um, trying to handle or, or help somebody from a rehabil rehabilitation standpoint, which is kind of my background, uh, we take into consideration more than just the physical injury. Okay, somebody had, let's say, a, a, a spinal cord injury. I can't just look at the injury itself and say, you had a spinal cord injury, here's your wheelchair, see you later. That doesn't work. I have to take into account what is that person's family dynamic like? Is this somebody who is, uh, let's say they're a 53-year-old homeless person? Where, where are you going to send them? Are you going to discharge them from the hospital and send them where? Uh, so this person will end up back in the ER. So I, there are things that you have to think about. Another part of this is when you are discussing people's health, what, what's their belief system? Because they may not buy into the same things that you do. But what we know is that people who are coming into the military, by and large, the, a large majority of them are identifying with uh, some sort of a faith-based or faith background, um, which plays a role in what their belief system is going to be in, in your process of healing them. You can't ignore that as a, as a non-factor. Richard? Would you pay to show that slide real quickly? Is, can. Uh, can you pick up the slide on the military veteran suicide, please? Thank you. Hopefully it works. I'm always afraid of technology. It should pop up on the sides. Yes. I can see our guy in there busily <laughs> struggling to get this. Now he's under stress, so yeah. <laughs> you know, so while we're kind of waiting for that slide to come on up, I just want to make sure that everybody's keenly aware that right now there's a, there's a suicide epidemic among our veteran community. That, that, that is, is that the VA reported uh, that over 20 veterans take their lives every single day. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, 
that's an ab absolute catastrophe. And and I think that regardless of who you are, if you're if you're an American, um, and it's our responsibility to take care of our men and women that come back from combat. So go ahead. And that is that man is body and mind. He may believe that they're spirit, but the most important aspect of man, the seed of man, would be his mind. So this is what we might call uh, Greek philosophy or Western civilization has adopted this. The most important part of man is his mind. Uh, Eastern philosophy, a much more ancient philosophy, believes that there is body, mind, and spirit. Those of us that come from a Judeo-Christian background, this is the principle of the scriptures. Uh, in the New Testament, it says, may your whole body, mind, and spirit be strengthened. Uh, I'm Jewish, so there we, we understand this also. Ruach is the Hebrew word for spirit or soul. We also use a word that talks about the kishkas in here. But that this spirit and this spirit relates to the supreme being. All right. DOD and VA operate under the idea that if we change, if we can change the mind, we will heal the, the person of PTSD or suicide ideation. There have been 900 programs in the last 15 years at DOD that are targeting the mind as far as suicide prevention and post-traumatic stress disorder. At VA, there are 200, there's been 200 programs. So that's 1,100 programs 10 years ago. As uh, Damon very rightly pointed out, there were 20 veterans and approximately one active military person per day that took their lives. After 1,100 programs, and these are theory, these are not evidence-based. This is not based on evidence. These are theories that, these 1,100 theories that they have targeted the mind of the military person and the veteran, after 15 years, we still have 21 military and veterans taking their lives each day. So these programs have not worked. They've failed miserably. And yet, we are still in the process. What is insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and getting what? The same results. Now, Dr. Vanderweel and Dr. Koenig have done 140 years. They have looked at 140 years of evidence clinical trials. There's an, an amazing uh, study that Harold Koenig did from Duke that I'll try and get you the link if you want to see it. And it was very rigorous, uh, very high level, um, high level of um, acceptance that he took. He said, no, they have to pass these criteria before I include them. And he overwhelmingly proved that a disciplined approach to religion speeds the recovery of PTSD, reduces suicide, and builds resiliency, which for the forces, as Damien can tell you, and as Steve can tell you, is what builds the character, builds the, that warrior. And so they've proven that, and now we have studies showing that, for example, real quickly, and then I'm gonna end. Uh, Emily is here, she pointed this out to me in a meeting. She said, Richard, this is a woman's issue. I said, oh my gosh, I've been talking about this stuff for months and I've never seen it. A woman that's been in the military 
is two and a half times more likely to take her life than someone in the general public. But a woman who, who attends a religious service at least once a week or more reduces her chance of suicide by 500%. That was a study done of 1,500 nurses by Tyler Vanderweel. So it is a women's health crisis. It's a national health crisis. And we need to come together in a bipartisan way and allow this. But this is what we're dealing with. It's a philosophical issue. Let's face it and let's call it what it is. And that's our struggle with getting legislation and what I do. Okay. Uh, since Richard brought up the, the Koenig Vanderweel study and information, would either of you like to comment on, on that and, and add anything to uh, based on your specific areas of expertise? I think one thing I would say, it's, it's interesting if you just look at the statistics. Um, and and the, the world that I deal with in performance, we look at we look at what's the outcome, right? So if I take, let's say, a group of athletes and I say I'm going to put them into this, this is scientifically, this is new evidence, and I'm going to put them into a training program, and I go from, let's say, the fifth best team in the league to the worst, what are the chances I'm going to continue that? Not very high, right? If you look at that study that was done, the, what, what they did is per 100,000 uh, uh, person years, they, they looked at what is the rate of suicide. So if you had zero religious attendance at all, it was seven out of 100,000. If you attended occasionally, let's say you were, you know, you went to a couple Jewish holidays or you went, you're a Catholic, you go to, you know, you, you celebrate Lent uh, once a year and nothing else, you, you go, it drops to six. If you're a regular attender, that's once a week or more than once a week, what's the rate? It's one out of 100,000. That's pretty, I think, pretty significant statistic. So um, 19 years I've been serving, and I've, I'm intimately familiar with the scars of war. I'm in the trenches with my men. I know they tell me what it is that they need, and, and I was talking to um, a colonel, special forces, uh, who's a, a leader in the community, and we were just sitting back discussing uh, what is the direct correlation between the suicides. We, we've had men that we've served with, men that uh, that uh, served in our units um, take their lives. And I'm going to tell you uh, the one suicide that really um, brought some clarity is, is, that, is that this one soldier basically had a Ph.D. in psychology. And what I mean by that is, as he was having these major difficulties, he saw every shrink, every psychologist, every, every, every form of counseling, and none of it addressed the spiritual component. And it was that day where we checked up on him, and uh, he passed mustard. You know, by all accounts, he looked as if he was good to go. And, it, and in that afternoon, he pulled the trigger and he killed himself. When we start looking at the suicides, and you looked at the direct correlation, you have to ask yourself a very profound question. And that's this. If we really, truly care about providing a solution for our men and women, are we providing every viable option? Every viable option. SOCOM Commander General Thomas is on Newsweek, and, he's, and he's, he's, he wants to find a solution. 
you know, we just mentioned over a, a decade, we spend over, you know, I don't even know, over a billion dollars on all these programs. And how much money have we actually spent on spiritual fitness? You'll see how we've spent a lot of money on physical fitness, um, decent amount in psychological fitness, less in social, which is family, and then look at how inept our spiritual fitness program is. And I just think that there's, you know, we when we're gathering together, I think we as Americans need to put our personal convictions aside and provide every viable solution for our warriors. And spiritual fitness is something that we have to seriously address because guess what? If we don't do that, we're going to look at ourselves. We're going to have another gathering like this in 10 years from now, and it's still going to be 20. All right. Um, so just, just to make this clear, we're not considering making people go to religious things or, or trying to drive them into that. We're talking about availing the, the folks who are there to help already, the, the chaplains, the, the psych people, all that, to make this kind of spiritual fitness idea available to them. Is that not correct? Yeah, I mean, the, the issue is, is that um, the work that I'm doing, uh, we're trying to pass legislation uh, for DOD and VA, is that we have created a program that is information that you include in the suicide prevention talks. There are three to four modules each year at DOD for every uh, military person that uh, is with them. And so they have to go through it. Um, and so it's only a matter of informing them that if you have a disciplined approach to religion, these things will happen in your life. It's your choice whether or not you want to do it, but we want to give them the information. So it's information-oriented, and we want to stay – and it's any religion, any organized religion. It's not Judeo-Christian. It's all religions. And uh, the results are there for every religion. It's not limited to Christianity. It's not limited to Catholicism. Any religion, a person that disciplines themselves and is an active member in their religion will reduce their suicide ideation, will speed the recovery of PTSD, and build resiliency. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I would ask the three of you to start thinking, because in a second I'm going to turn it back to you, to ask you to, to provide an anecdote or, or data that best shows folks the, the importance of this type of, of approach. Uh, I, and the reason I'm going to give you a couple of minutes because I want to tell one. And I'm, since I'm the moderator, I get to do that. Uh, I, I commanded a special forces battalion. I had soldiers of every stripe and color and flavor in there. I had Christians. I had Jews. I had a couple of Muslim soldiers. I had a lot of folks who professed absolutely no religious affiliation at all and, in fact, said, you know, I just don't believe in God. Uh, I had a couple of them who, you know, studied the Norse gods and that sort of thing because they thought that was a real warrior thing to do. Uh, <clears throat> I had a command sergeant major in my unit who came to me and said, sir, I understand you ran a Bible study this morning here in the, in the battalion area. And I said, yeah, I did. He goes, oh, I wish I'd known. I'd have marched my troops over. And I said, well, Sergeant Major, I appreciate that, but that, you know, we can't do that. You don't march people to, to do religious things. You open it up for them. And he says, no, no, sir, you don't understand. They all need God. And I said, well, Sergeant Major, I agree with that, but we still can't make people go to things. He said, no, sir, 
you don't understand. Now, vision this. This man was about a foot taller than me and about this wide, a big, thick neck. He was a Hispanic fella. And he, he said, sir, you don't understand. I've had three men die in my arms, two on parachute jumps and one in combat. And at that moment, they all need God. And I have to tell you, it was kind of a light come on moment for me, even though I have, you know, my own faith that this man, not being theological at all, being ultimately practical and a leader of men, and he realized the importance of, of some kind of faith at that very critical moment in, in someone's walk. Uh, it kind of got my eyes open and made me realize the importance. And now we have another 10 or 15 years worth of very important data, both scientific and anecdotal, to back that up. So would uh, each of you like to, to add something in, in that regard? Well, first of all, um, appreciate you sharing that story because that's a direct reflection that our leaders genuinely care about our warriors my leaders in my chain of command genuinely care about our warriors and they want us to do something about it. I'm having a conversation with another Green Beret deployed eight times for you, for me, all over the world, fighting the most dangerous people in the world. And he's coming to me in privacy and he's asking, he's like, Damon, I need help, but I just don't know where to go. And I'm talking to our, um, our chaplain and I asked him, I said, what are the options here in this command? What can we do? And the bottom line is, is that, and I found from one, uh, from one unit to another unit that there is a resistance against anything that deals with the spiritual component. And, as you, if, you're, and if you're listening, you notice I'm not advocating for a particular religion. I'm not advocating for particular material. What I'm saying is, is that when that warrior came to me, and he told me he was thinking about taking his life that day. I'm looking for a viable option that I can help out that warrior. And I don't have to do it in secret because that's wrong. When we, have, when we feel like we got to find a private corner so we can, we can talk to that warrior to help him find hope and even to share what we know that has brought us hope. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned, I think it was in 2010, I was in a really dark place. And I was going through some bad stuff. And I questioned myself, what's the purpose of living? And I'm going to tell you right now, if it wasn't for this guy right here, I wouldn't be here today. This, this gentleman right here is my best friend. He's a physician. And he understands the importance and how, how critical it is to provide holistic fitness. And, he, and he, he, he gave me what it is that I needed. And I want to share that with my men and women in combat too. I think one thing to remember is that all, all of these guys in the special operations community, they, their their focus is mission, well, mission, purpose, and focus. I mean, they have they have something that they are set out in a task to do. They have a community that's around them, and when they're injured, they lose that. That's gone. So anybody who loses purpose, if you retire, you know what what is the rate of death after retirement? Uh, the, the chances that somebody's going to live for a long period of time after retirement. The, I think statistically it's about, it's, the average is 
six to ten years, something like that. Is that because of losing purpose? Is that because of disease? It, it, I don't know that I've ever seen that statistic uh, teased out that way, but I know when, when guys lose purpose, mission, or focus, that for them, they, they lose all hope. And this is true with my friends that have retired from professional boxing. This is true for my friends that have retired from NFL. This is, and I work, I'm a medical director for a program through the NFL, through the Players Association. When, when people lose their purpose, when their identity, who they have identified themselves as is gone, their, their reason for living is, is usually gone. What, what we're advocating is an opportunity for these people to have a community. Do they have a community outside of the military that can help them? Do they have a community at home that's going to support them through their injury? Do they have people around them? It could be uh, that includes their family, but sometimes the family's not in the picture. Um, this, this allows that opportunity to be present, and, it, and I think it changes also the focus for them back to, okay, I have an identity, I'm part of a community, and I can have a, a purpose and a focus outside of whatever it was that I started out doing before. I was a middle linebacker for an NFL team for 10 years. I, I now have a purpose, and I can help kids who are, and I'm speaking of a, a close friend of mine, but I have kids that have gone through the same horrific childhood that I went through. I have an opportunity to help them. I can give back. But, but people like that do that first through grounding themselves through some sort of a, a community or faith-based faith uh, connection. I just want to bring the anecdote of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is the same program that we are each talking about. And yet in our society, we accept that readily. And how many of us, probably in this room, have had gone through the program? And what is the first step? that you accept the fact that you're not powerful to do this and that there's a God who can help you to do it. Those men that started that lived about a mile from where I live. They knew that what helped them was their relationship through to God through the spirit that they had within them. And that's what they gave to the world. My question is, why can't we accept that in our government, our federal system. It's the very tool that, that our men and women need to come to health. Okay. Uh, I, when I served with the Secretary of Defense, we did a lot of visits to, to our medical facilities here in the Washington area. Almost every Sunday, we would go visit the, the wounded. Uh, and quite often, we'd go to the rehab areas and, and saw some of the most fascinating to me technologies and, and methodologies that the rehab folks were using to help the, the young men and women that, that had lost limbs that were really struggling. There, there were times, one time the secretary was giving out his coin, which is a big thing for military people, uh, to some of these folks, and he talked to this one young lady but didn't give her a coin and moved on. So we said, you know, sir, you need to give one to her. He said, well, why? She doesn't have anything wrong with her. He didn't realize she had two fake limbs, one leg and one arm. But they were the technology was so good and so advanced that he didn't even notice. Uh, can you guys elaborate a little bit on, on some of the, the things we're talking about? Maybe the program that your folks run, Damon, and, and, and Richard, what you're talking about with, with the legislators and trying to get DOD and, and uh, VA to do. 
And then, uh, David, you could wrap it up with, with what you've seen as well. So um, just as far as my personal journey on path of, uh, a path to wellness, um, you know, when I was struggling back in 2010 and I wanted to address that spiritual fitness component, I couldn't find it in my own particular community. I, did, I had to find it outside. I had to find it outside, right, because it was acceptable to deal with a psychological fitness and physical fitness. But this whole spiritual fitness thing was just um, not readily available. So within our organization, what we do is, is uh, we, we provide customized care for our warriors. So we find if you're a struggling warrior, sir, what we do is, is we provide uh, mentors, counselors, psychologists, peer-based programs, physical rehab, physical therapy, uh, spiritual fitness in, in a way where we're trying to figure out where you are in your life and then help you on your journey, and it's customized. And the reason why we do that is just because we're treating you mind, body, and spirit, right? But when you start talking about whole person fitness, it's just challenging with some people because they don't really recognize the spiritual component. So in our organization, that's what we do. And we want it, it would be my hope that we would be able to provide that in, uh, in the military in every unit, that this is an acceptable thing, right? Because we're trying to provide every viable option for our warriors, regardless of your personal convictions, your religious preference, or your politi political party, because it's not about politics. It's not even about military. It's about the fact that we're, we should be able to provide the care that these guys and gals need. So the whole person fitness is really critical to understand and to walk away with that it's all about providing viable options for warriors. So I'll talk just real briefly about the legislation that uh, we're working on. I said earlier that uh, Dr. Koenig and Dr. Vanderweel and, and some others uh, have put together a suicide prevention information uh, program to give to our uh, military personnel and to have eventually at the VA. Um, the legislative uh, battle is a seriously difficult one. Um, and uh, we are at a pause currently. Um, we had the measure uh, in what's called the NDAA for the 2019 DOD budget. Um, it did not pass out of committee, even though the Republicans controlled the committee. Um, and if they would have passed it, it would have become part of the NDAA and would have mandated DOD to start giving the information to personnel. So we, we lost that battle. Um, so we're on pause now that the Democrats uh, control the House because legislators, experts have told me, legislators, I always listen to people who are smarter than me. And these staffers that work for senators and House members, they know many times more than the representatives do. So they've told me, Richard, we got to wait on this. So I'll take a two-year pause. But there was a man by the name of Wilberforce from England. Read Eric Metaxas' book. He's a friend, so I, I read his, by his book. Uh, but a uh, story of how Wilberforce, for 50 years, fought slavery in the British Empire. After 23 years... He was successful to stop the slave trade. And in the next 30 years or a little bit less, it took 30 more years to stop slavery entirely in the British Empire. Hopefully it's not going to take 50 years, but we'll be here trying to do this until then. Um, we're trying to approach the Trump administration about an executive order to mandate this at DOD and VA. 
Um, it would be challenged in the courts, but I actually say let's do it. Let's bring this to the courts because the issue of church-state is erroneous, in my opinion, the way it's looked at today. Why did the uh, Congress decide after George Washington's inauguration and put it in the record, we're all going to church to pray right after the inauguration? And why during the revolution did uh, the Continental Congress decide to create what's called the Aiken Bible? So our understanding of church-state uh, is, I think, erroneous, and um, I wanted to go to the court. So I'm, if anybody wants to bring me to Donald Trump or General Kelly, be my guest. Thank you. I'm going to kind of branch a little bit more into the scientific basis. I mean, what, why is this? So we're, we're talking about this and saying, you know, there should be an option for people. Okay. Um, what would be, what physiologically um, could I use as a model that says, hey, this is something that works? So I, I know if I lift weights, you know, there's a physiologic change that happens, I can get stronger. If I want to uh, become more flexible, I can stretch. I can do foam rolling. There's a lot of things to do. So what, what's happening within um, people, within, within this diagnosis, PTSD or the suicide risk, what's happening within people that leads them down this path to begin with? There, there's one thing that's in common between traumatic brain injury, uh, PTSD, and depression. That's inflammation. What does inflammation have to do with religion? Um, I mean, the, the, the question is, is, I think, a natural one that we have, but um, inflammation is something that begins because of a process. Is it a stressful event? It could be. So chronic stress changes hormonally what happens. It activates your immune system. Immune system, as it becomes overactive, then creates a state of inflammation that may be local or it could be systemic. Uh, trauma, uh, having a concussive blast exposure, ha having your head hit, uh, the, the people who are uh, dealing with CTE after playing football for you know, a certain period of time, that's a traumatic event, that's a physical traumatic event. Uh, and then you have genetics that play a role. So there are certain people that can't turn off that immune response once it starts. Um, it, the end result of all of these things uh, in chronic inflammation is Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, uh, and, and, and these guys with uh, sports exposure at CTE. Um, and that's a hot-button topic in a different realm. But um, if, if you could look at it and say, how do you tile this stuff back and how do you treat it, What's happening scientifically? Well, first thing is the, to, to, to look at the brain. The brain becomes injured, whether it's an emotional event or it's a physical event. Uh, as that happens, then you start to change what happens from a metabolism standpoint in the brain. The brain uses fuel. It, it's, it makes up 4% of the body weight, but it uses 20% of the, the body's glucose or sugar. So it uses a lot of energy. And when you create an event that happens, uh, a blast injury again, I, I use that example, or, uh, or a stress event, your, your brain's metabolism begins to change and it cannot keep up with the demand. And as that happens, you, you create a state where your immune system is very activated. Your immune system is trying to clean out what's wrong. So this, this link that we have with all three of these things with inflammation, we're doing research projects to try to figure out how do we stop inflammation? How do we treat inflammation? There's recent research that says you shouldn't stop inflammation. You should change it to resolution, um, which is a whole new discovery that hasn't even reached medicine yet. But... When, when, you act, when you're looking at ways to activate or change the activation of your immune system, 
you look at two parts of your nervous system that are involved. One is your fight-or-flight response. That's called your sympathetic nervous system. That is pure survival. The other is rest and repair. It's called parasympathetic. If I want to calm my immune system down, I want to stimulate the parasympathetic response. What are some ways that I can do that? I can do that through things that we use within the DOD. I can do float therapy. I can do cognitive behavioral therapy. I can do uh, uh, neurofeedback EEG, but I can't do prayer, but that's, that's one of the things that's, that's allowed. Where I, you know, th there's a limitation to what I can do. Can I reach out to somebody and, and begin to uh, uh, use my uh, faith background and uh, start to activate that part of my parasympathetic nerv nervous system? I think you should be able to do that. Uh, acupuncture does that. There, there's many things that do that meditation. They activate that part of the, the uh, nervous system. It calms the immune system down, and that's, that's the link. So this is a tool that we should be using. If I could just say one other thing, and, and that is, is um, a major initiative with SOF missions is, is um, to advocate what would it look like if the military institution, government agencies would be able to glean from nonprofits that are having significant success in combating suicide and the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder? Check this out. One organization, Mighty Oaks Warrior Program, which our organization partners with, they've had over 2,000, 2,000 veterans, active duty guardsmen go through their program, peer-based. Of the 2,000, Many of them struggling with suicidal ideations. You know how many suicides there's been since they've gone through that program? Zero. Zero. And that's just one program. What would it look like if we could gather together and bridge the gap, asking Congress, hey, let's figure out a way to bridge that gap so that government agencies, military institutions can work with nonprofits? I mean, at the end of the day, how much money is it going to? Is it going to cost them? A lot of our nonprofits, look, Mighty Oaks Warrior Program, if you have a veteran in dire need of help, you know how much it costs that warrior to go through the Mighty Oaks Warrior Program? Zero dollars. Fully funded. When a warrior goes through SOF missions through our Surrender Project that receives an approximate $15,000 worth of veteran care, you know how much it costs the veteran? Zero dollars. You know why? Because there are people in this country that are genuinely care about our warriors and I'm telling you right now that we have solutions here and our military community and government community, we need to all get together and be able to work collectively together. Um, I want to recognize Kelly in the back of the room. She is a legislator, works for Senator Lankford that I'm working with now about restructuring uh, the chaplaincy at VA. And uh, she is a warrior. And Kelsey, the woman works for, there's another warrior for our military and veterans and this is the discussion we're having about creating legislation, and and legislators are open to this now, that they recognize we're only thirty percent of the veterans community utilizing VA, that we've got to somehow bring in uh, these nonprofits, these NGOs, that we've got to somehow come up with a partnership, as Damon's pointing out, that are touching our veterans, and how can we partner together? Here, here's the situation, ladies and gentlemen. We've only had two wars where we have treated our veterans, um, what historians would say would be optimally, was Civil War and it was World War II. Here's a statistic. 12% of the population served in the Civil War. 16% of the population served in World War II. It was politically expedient. Let's call a spade a spade. It was 
pressure on the politicians to do something, and we got great programs. We have less than a 1% of the population serving in our military community. So it's going to have to come some other way. We have got to become that political pressure. It's, it's you. It's me. It's these NGOs, these nonprofits. It's people like Dr. LeMay. We have to be the voice for those that don't have a voice. They don't have a voice in this city. They really don't. Um, so we need your help. We need your help to call your congressman, call your senator, get everybody you know to do it, and say, we need these kind of programs. We need them for our warriors. We don't need to be like all the other wars where we have thrown our veterans asunder. Okay, the, the ladies have stood up with the microphones, which is a signal to me that I need to turn this over to all of you. Uh, the way we're going to do this is you raise your hand. I will acknowledge you. We'd like you to state your name and if you have any uh, affiliation, that very briefly. And then please ask a question. Okay? Don't give a speech. If I don't hear a question mark at the end of the second sentence, I'm going to ask you to please ask the question. And if you keep going, I'm going to ask you to sit down. So let's not take up the time with that. Let's get as many questions as we can before the, uh, we start the movie. The gentleman right in the back corner there. Thank you, Steve Ackerman, uh, incoming legislative director for Congressman-elect Russ Fulcher. Um, two quick questions. One, uh, can, uh, can any of you provide me a, a characterization of the VA programs, 200 programs, and yet the failure rate? Uh, Dr. Glickstein, or well, sorry, no, doctor, thank you Mr. Mr. Glickstein. Well, thank you for the degree. I'll uh, that's the first. Short speech afterwards. Um, here's the situation. Um, the VA... Um, the VA's programs are there, but there's a manpower shortage to even get the programs to um, caregivers at the regional hospitals. I'll give you one example. Tampa VA Hospital, which is a large regional hospital, and um, there is a tasked clinical uh, behavioral therapist with with teaching suicide prevention to the employees. That person, there's supposed to be five of them at that hospital. There's only one, this woman. She is so busy seeing patients, she has no time to do any training. Um, the system is understaffed. We have 40% um, need amongst behavioral therapists. Uh, so, and with psychologists, because of the hiring method of how long it takes, what I'm saying is the system at VA is different than DOD. They have a great force structure. They have a great way to get the message out. They just don't have this message going out. But at VA, it's, and that's why the restructuring, one of the reasons why we're working towards restructuring is because the system is so chaotic, so broken, and each hospital, each hospital is a I say this in a kind way, a fiefdom unto itself. It, each regional hospital or each hospital, that director controls the budget and how things work out. So it's, 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 these women have gotten me in a lot of trouble. They said, we're going to change this all day. I said, oh gosh, help me. But anyway. Okay, and the, the follow-up. Thank you. Well, just a quick one, and, and, and this, uh, the panel may not be able to answer this because this is something I'm just germinating uh, given this, uh, this issue. 
I'm wondering if there's something we can do in the tax code to create some kind of tax credits for caregivers, uh, some kind of home home health care orientation. I, I don't know, doctors, is there some way to, to bring in maybe uh, some of these non-traditional approaches? You mentioned meditation, and I immediately said, is there really that big a leap between meditation and prayer? Um, maybe it's simply the way it's written in code uh, when it goes in a law. But I'm just wondering, you have home health care providers of all sorts out there who do provide call it non-traditional or, or more Eastern care. So uh, maybe that's something for, for afterward, but that's just a, a thought, something in the tax code that might be able to at least open up a, a channel for funding there. Okay, nobody's leaping on that one, so we'll save that for afterwards. Okay. I would say that the University of Michigan has done studies about meditation and its impact. Uh, one of the leading psychiatrists in the United States that I know who consults for the VA has uh, his group, uh, there's a group of psychiatrists across the country that are recognizing now with their failure rate that they have to go to non-traditional methods, that they are not helping patients, their hearts are in the right place, and now they're looking. I was invited to a very non, uh, I don't know what the word is, conformist thing, and I thought, Lord, I hope I don't have to walk on fire if I go. But uh, so the, those things are out there, and they're trying to press the VA specifically to look at these kind of issues. Okay. Sir? Hi, my name's Tim Clementi. I'm a friend of Damon's. I'm a retired FBI agent and I'm currently a writer. I have two sons active duty right now in the Marine Corps. And my question is, uh, you talked briefly in the beginning, Dr. LeMay and Mr. Glickstein, a little bit about statistics, about the percentages of, I know, uh, female women with either TBI or uh, post-traumatic stress disorder that uh, had some religious affiliation. And I was wondering if there's any statistics across the board on those that, that suffer PTSD, what before they went in, what their resilience was, maybe based on having that background prior. Is there any study that has been done or any statistics at all on the victims, those that are that are have PTSD or those that have committed suicide or attempted, and what their basis was in any religious belief prior. There is numerous studies of veterans that um, have had a religious affiliation uh, that uh, their uh, overcoming PTSD uh, is uh, much, much better than those that are not religious affiliation. I can give you those studies. I have that information here. So if you do want it, I'm glad to share it with you. One thing I can share is, uh, is, uh, some statistics from the, um, uh, the, uh, the wounded war, the, the, uh, Mighty Oaks warrior program. And that is, is that of those 2000, uh, many of them that come in have no religious affiliation whatsoever, but then when they depart, 90% of them, 90% of them end up having a strong relationship with God, which is a direct correlation between the, the resiliency. Uh, we're, we're, I, I know that uh, Chad Robichaud, a good friend of mine, prior force recon Marine, eight deployments to Afghanistan, who's the founder of Mighty Oaks Warrior Program. And uh, these, st these stats are astounding. So that in itself is proof. When you talk about 90% of them walk away with a strong uh, relationship with God and resiliency. As far as a cure or helping to be healed and moving on, I'm talking about does, is there any st stat that tells us about resiliency prior 
and so that you're not maybe you're not as vulnerable if you have a strong religious yeah. belief going in. I'm wondering if there's no. There are there are studies to that effect also. So we can get you that information if you'll just wait afterwards. Okay, we'll get this gentleman and then this one. Um, yeah, Gabriel Greenspan, intern with Congressman Chris Smith from New Jersey. Um, my question to you is if there is a, and this is open to anyone from the panel, but if there is a partnership between um, NGOs, potentially religious NGOs, and uh, the military, and you know, essentially an arm of, of the government, is there a danger for those religious NGOs that their mission, their religious mission, would be tainted by being associated with the government, by potentially being pressured by or influenced by the government? I, I can't see how it can be. And let me tell you why. At the end of the day, when it comes to the NGOs, we go back to the basic fundamentals of providing every viable option for our warriors, right? So you have – I don't even know how many NGOs there are out there. But I know that there's thousands upon thousands of them that want to help out our warriors. And so the military institution or the government can simply – we just want to provide our services. That's it. That's all it is. It's that simple. And it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. If SOF Missions has a partnership with the government, then we are who we are. This is what we do. And if you, if, if you think that you're, we can help out your warrior, we'd really like to do that. We know that we can. So that would be my – uh, my position on that. I would say this, and please don't take this wrong. Um, I was meeting with the military advisor for senator on the House, Senate Armed Services Committee, and I presented this information to this individual. At the end of the discussion, he said this to me. He said, I don't want to change the suicide prevention at DOD. I said, what? He said, I want to leave it the way it is. I said, 21 men and women are killing themselves each day, and we've had no results in 15 years. You still want to keep it that way? He said, yes. When you, My wife and I went to marriage counseling, and this is what the man said. He said, if you're getting the same results, shift. Do something different. Because one plus one is two. If you make it one plus two, you'll get three. We have to shift, no matter what the dangers are in one sense. Yes, there's going to be dangers with anything we do when we shift, but the end result is we may save, what if we save 10% of the 7,600 men and women that are taking their lives this year? 760 lives. These men go into combat. If there's a fallen soldier, they'll go back for one. We have the opportunity as a republic to go back into battle and save many, many more lives by shifting. Yeah, I think it would be more of an issue if it was mandated that people had to do these kind of programs. If, if the government was funneling them to an NGO, that you're getting on a slippery slope. But if you just make it available and then allow the, the people to, to do it on their own, I don't think you'll have the, the concern that, that you have. Just I'm not a lawyer, so. Okay, this gentleman right here. Then we'll get you back there, and then you, sir. Uh, my name is Kevin Pham. This question is mostly for uh, Dr. LeMay. Um, <clears throat> we normally think of PTSD and suicide as a psychiatric issue treated with, like, Zoloft. Um, to what extent are you seeing that uh, combination of physical medicine and, uh, and faith-based uh, treatment as replacing pharmaceutical treatment? I think the, the problem with pharmaceuticals um, 
it, and, and what I do in the performance world is that we, we wait. If you look at what, what we're trying to strive for is optimal in the performance world. And most people have some sort of mild dysfunction and they can still perform at a high level. And you see that with a lot of professional athletes. But once it gets to the point where it's dysfunctional and the person is breaking down, that's where medicine steps in. Medicine steps in and says, okay, here's your list of symptoms. Here's your ICD-10 code. And I now have an algorithm that allows me to prescribe certain medications for you. So where, where the medical community, I think, um, struggles is when you get outside of that algorithm. Pharmaceuticals, can they play a role? Absolutely. Do I use them? Absolutely. Do I think they're the answer for everything? No way. Uh, can you name a single pharmaceutical agent right now that treats Alzheimer's disease? And, and they've been studied. I mean, drug companies have been studying these things for a long period of time. They're not finding success because it's a global picture. The metabolism of the brain is not one single thing. It's not a magnesium issue. It's not a serotonin issue. It's not a dopamine issue. It's not a glutamate issue. It's, it's all of these things combined. Glucose metabolism, insulin resistance. There are so many things that go into this picture beyond just one single pathway that a pharmaceutical by itself probably doesn't work. Um, it, it's not going to fix it. And I can tell you in dealing with these guys, I don't know how many people have walked into my office and have, have a bag full of meds. You know, here's 15 medications that I'm taking for my PTSD or for my you know, back injury, my brain injury, and I'm, I'm sick of it. I'm, I'm ready to be done. Uh, and, and many of those people, we just start looking at it from a systems biology approach. Okay, how's the human system supposed to work? Um, if, if I'm a sprinter, I'm not supposed to run backwards, right? So, I mean, there's some basics that we apply to this. And I start looking and say, why are you on this medication? Why are you on, you know, uh, Paxil or Zoloft or Luvox or, uh, uh, you know, Celexa or Wellbutrin? I mean, there's a million of these things that work on these serotonin pathways, but there's more involved than that. I start whittling away from that. And I start looking and saying, what's the big picture? The big picture is, if you're looking at uh, depression from an inflammatory state, do medications play a role? Maybe. There's been some studies recently saying maybe what we should be doing in treating depression is putting people on anti-inflammatory medications. Maybe that'll make a difference. So there's a pharmaceutical link. But, but that blocks the resolution pathway, so that's not going to be the answer either. And, and if you look at what I was talking about earlier between sympathetic and parasympathetic, so you have fight or flight, your survival mechanism uh, of, of being in, in this hyper-aware state, um, versus calm, relaxed, uh, um, rest and repair, that parasympathetic side, where does serotonin sit? And that's where those medications work. Serotonin sits on the parasympathetic side. So does GABA. And if you, if you look at GABA, we put people on things like Neurontin, Gabapentin, uh, Lyrica, Ambien, uh, Xanax, Ativan, Valium, uh, Baclofen. These are all things that work on that parasympathetic side with a different chemical, but they seem to help with some of the symptoms. It doesn't resolve the issue, however. So I, I, think, I think what you're, you know, when, when you're looking at pharmaceuticals, you have to look at it also as a tool, not the solution. And I think, unfortunately, in medicine, we've focused into pharmaceuticals as the solution for the problem rather than a tool that we have in our toolbox. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay, we're gonna, these are going to be the last two because then we're going to play the film, but we'll have an opportunity to talk to the panel out, outside after that. 
Glenn Bloomstrom. I'm with Living Works Education. I'm a 30-year retired uh, Army chaplain. I have a son who's SF, and I have another son who's combat rescue officer in the U.S. Air Force. So thank you for your service. Um, my question, I think in this room we're all resonating with, you know, with spiritual solutions. Are any of you aware, either with Mighty Oaks or Soft, or Richard, with some of your contacts, of any churches that have taken up a voice for the veteran, other than uh, Veterans Day, thank you for your service, um, with, a, with almost 300,000 pastors and 148 million people who say they worship at least monthly, are there any strategies where denominations or leaders have taken up this message uh, to partner with NGOs, with the VA, with military chaplains? Are you aware of any? Uh, we, um, uh, we were working on a program that we would cross the nation have veterans welcome centers, that there are churches that have um, a welcoming. There's some, some that feel very strongly that we need a warrior, and we have warriors come into service, but we have no ceremony for warriors going out of service. So this is um, really something I think that somebody should take up. I can't take another hat, but this is, we have been talking and strategizing, how does this happen? Because really the touch of local community, as Damon has said, and, and David also, it's the local community that's going to transform the, the veteran because it's one of the issues is isolation. It's culture shock. There's a culture shock issue. And if the local community will come around that veteran without being oppressive, they'll change their life. It's the same thing I say about the VA. The first touch of the VA with a veteran is the most important touch. And unfortunately, that touch is not as good as it could be. And our, I think it's one of the reasons why 70% of our veterans today are not participating in a relationship to VA that wants to help. But but I, I think it's a very good question, suggestion. And if you want to take that up, I think it's phenomenal. And I'll tell Doug Carver you did. So uh, this is a heartburn for me. Um, I speak nationally, primarily in California, Texas, and Florida, where uh, the majority of our veterans live, uh, reside. And I'm here to tell you, there are some good men and women making a genuine effort to making this happen. But the fact of the matter is, it's no. There's no network. There's no legitimate network, and you know, and, and I don't want any of our of those individuals that have been working hard to develop that network. But I'm here to tell you that I've I've spoken in um, on platforms, churches, faith-based, and the majority of the congregation are veterans, and they have no veteran resources at all. They don't even know uh, contacts uh, for the VA. They have no education no uh, material whatsoever. And so that's one of our endeavors at SOF Mission. So we, we, myself and a couple of PhDs put together some educational material for the churches, for faith-based organizations, for nonprofits that uh, are not religious at all, for military institutions. Look, here's the, here's the deal. 
uh, is that if you have a community, you're a leader and your community has a significant uh, uh, population of veterans, you should have materials, you should have programs, you should have groups. I, I'm, I was actually just trying to figure out, my last article was with Fox News or, or a, another magazine, and, and, and I openly stated, if you're a congregation, and the majority of your, uh, your con uh, of your congregation are vets and their families, and you don't even have programs for them, shame on you. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that from Francis Damon Friedman, Lieutenant Colonel, Special Operations, 19 years of service. Like, that's what we should be doing. A connect group, a life group, whatever group you want to call it. And so, um, anyway, that's my personal conviction, and that's what we're trying to do at SOF Missions is develop a network nationally uh, to provide these resources for churches, faith-based organizations, whatever it may be. We have the education. We have the studies. One of the problems you run into <clears throat> is that, you know, Damon mentioned to me before we came up, came down here that – one of the reasons he's effective in reaching people is because the veterans look at him and say, yeah, you're one of us. You know, chaplains can provide that. There's not that many former chaplains running around the country in the, the multitude of congregations we got. And we have pastors who want to try and help, but they they don't necessarily have the cred in the minds of, of the veterans of them understanding what a veteran has gone through that's been in combat. So that, that's a tough lift to try and get the people with the credibility, but also the people who have the skills and, and education to bring the, the kind of counseling and, and hopefully godly counseling that these folks need. So you got to get those matched up, and, and that's, that's difficult to do right now out, out there. So, sir, and this is going to be the last one before I introduce our film. Thank you. My name is Arthur Schultz. I'm a retired armor officer, Vietnam vet. I went to law school after I retired, and my firm is known as Chaplain's Council. I represent chaplains and chaplain endorsing agencies. <clears throat> and first off, I want to thank Heritage for having this forum, or whatever we want to call it, because you've really hit and highlighted a serious problem. And my question is, in, in looking for legislative or other alternatives, have you considered approaching the waste uh, how do I exposers or those who in Congress who look for waste and expose it? Because there's a cottage industry out there that supports the PTSD. And, and they have an interest, a financial interest, in keeping religion out. And I'd be glad to discuss that with you further with actual examples of where they, <laughs> to the effect, to the, to the extent that they've even impacted the chaplains. Uh, there was a program that they put on for Air Force reserve officers that essentially told chaplains, park your religion at the door. This is not an area in which you have a, a role to play. So can you, uh, I, I say, I think what you've explained to us is, is how none of these 2,000, 1,200 programs work. And, and like I say, there's, there's a lot of money there. Well, I appreciate what you do, sir. Um, and I've work with the chaplains now for, I guess, over 10 years. And uh, there is definitely a push um, with at DOD uh, from the outside, some from within, um, and uh, to marginalize chap the chaplaincy. You know, the work of the Beckett Fund, I work with the Beckett Fund on this issue. And at VA, as uh, 
Kelly and Kelsey, it's Senator Langford's office uh, and, and Senator Bozeman's office and others, Senator Ernst and House members, uh, that the VA chaplains are almost totally marginalized. Um, and so that's why we are trying to um, create legislation so that we can rectify that so that they can be caregivers, uh, caregivers in the sense of helping with suicide prevention because they're basically experts at it. They have the same educational um, level, their master's degree, and then they have field experience prior to becoming chaplains. So this is a very serious problem. This is, this is not a haphazard um, approach. This is a concerted effort, effort to marginalize the chaplaincy at DOD and the VA. I'll give you one anecdote and I'll be general. Um, I met with a senior legal advisor to the Pen in the Pentagon, works for the Pentagon. And he said to me, he said, Richard, we can't let a religious-based answer to suicide or post-traumatic stress disorder at DOD because Mikey Weinstein will sue us. Now, here's the reality. Mikey Weinstein is an Air Force Academy graduate. He served, became a lawyer. Um, and he sues the VA, I'm mean, sues DOD and the VA at any chance he gets from any hint of anything related to spiritual fitness or religion. Here's the, here's the best reality, though he's never won a case against DOD. So I sat there and I looked at this executive legal counsel at DOD and said, he's never won anything. But it's just the fear of this um, this fear of blowback, this fear of things. So we are, this is a very real um, situation. And if we can recognize what it is and work towards changing that, but we can't make believe it's not there. It is reality. Okay. Uh, you guys should probably talk afterwards. Having an armor officer that's now a lawyer would be a good person to have on the team. An armor lawyer. I like that. That's right. Bring the tank. Okay. Uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to play a film for you called Surrender Only to the One. Uh, it, it is a faith-based faith film. It's been produced by Damon's organization, uh, Shields of Faith Missions. Uh, it is not designed to proselytize anybody. It's showing you what one program of this sort can do uh, in the lives of some real-life warriors that faced these crises that we've been addressing and how this helped them. It is an example of the kind of program that the panel has been talking about. And again, I emphasize so no one misunderstands, we're not advocating forcing people to go the religious route for their therapy or their treatment. We're talking about giving a, the practitioners who are out there another tool in their toolkit. And oh, by the way, it happens to be a tool that statistically has the best success rate, uh, but giving them that additional tool to address this problem. As a former commander, I got to tell you, when it comes to taking care of your troops, you want every single asset you can get your hands on because those people mean the world to you. And it grieves people to see their men and women go without 
without anything they need, darn sure without not having access to something that might actually give them the the healing that they need to uh, to move on in life. So, uh, Damon, I will give you an opportunity to say whatever you want about the movie if you want to add to it, but then we'll get the movie started. It's a real honor to to have the opportunity to show this film to you. We've we've garnered six national and international awards. It's just one hour. We did that um, um, specifically so that uh, uh, it would make the largest impact. Um, I'm just telling you that this movie has saved hundreds of people's lives. And just like uh, the good commander said, this is just one tool. Uh, a lot of the men who've come to find hope through our organization, uh, the conversation goes, Damon, I've tried everything. I said, well, you haven't tried this. So I really appreciate it, and I thank you for the opportunity, and uh, I know that you'll enjoy it. And I would ask you to be patient, watch the movie, and then afterwards we're all going to go out into the lobby, and the panel will be available for you to ask additional questions or get additional clarification at that time. So if we could start. <laughs> 